We are in Philippians chapter 1 today. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll get through the end of chapter 1. Today's message is entitled, To Live is Christ. We're studying the book of Philippians. And last week, we learned that Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome. Paul's purpose in writing was to thank the Philippians for their continued love and encouragement, their prayers, and their financial support to Paul's ministry as he was a missionary. But this wasn't just a thank you letter, it was also an encouragement letter. Paul encouraged the Philippians to continue growing in their faith, in their relationship with Jesus. We read last week in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul said, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us that God is the one who began the work in our hearts. Whenever somebody becomes a Christian, chooses to follow Jesus, they do so because they're responding to the work that God has done in their heart. But God's work isn't finished. Though you may be a Christian, though you may be saved, destined for heaven, God is continuing that work in you and in me until the day that we're with him in heaven. He continues to make us less and less like ourselves and more and more like Jesus. So from beginning to end, God gets all the credit. Then Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he said, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So although God is the one that starts and finishes the work in your heart and in my heart, Paul also recognizes that we need to play our part by continually surrendering to that work. You see, God begins it, God finishes it, but you and I continue to say, Lord, more. Lord, I continue to surrender my life, my will, my heart to you. Lord, continue to make my heart more like you and less like me. Now, in today's message, we'll answer questions like, what does it mean to live for Christ? Why should we live for Christ? Why did God create us? And how can death for a Christian be a good thing? So let's jump in. In Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 through 18, we read how the gospel goes forth. Verse 12, Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, I mentioned already before that Paul's writing this letter from prison in Rome. So what does Paul mean when he says, the things which happened to me, and how have they turned out for the furtherance of the gospel? What exactly happened to Paul? Well, several years earlier, Paul finished his third missionary journey in Jerusalem, where he was falsely accused of taking a Gentile into the Jewish temple 
That was against their law. Now, he was innocent, but they falsely accused him. And so a crowd began to riot. And they tried to kill Paul right there on the spot. And the Romans, they stepped in. They arrested Paul for his own safety as they tried to figure out what's going on. We're trying to keep the peace here. Well, they sent Paul to Caesarea, where he remained a prisoner for two more years. Simply because those that were in charge were waiting for a bribe before they released Paul. And so for two years, he's waiting in prison. Finally, a new government official took office and he wanted to release Paul and send him back to Jerusalem for trial. But Paul knew that there's some Jews in Jerusalem that still hate me. They still want to murder me. And so Paul, as a Roman citizen, he appealed his case to Caesar. And so they said, okay, you're going back on a ship and you're going to Rome. And so Paul was sent all the way to Italy, to Rome. Now, Paul is still there in Rome. He's still in prison. It's been several years. He's an innocent man arrested on false charges. Political games have kept him behind bars. He suffered a shipwreck and a poisonous snake bite on his route to Rome and he's still in prison. He can't go visit the Philippians in person. He knows the church in Philippi is worried about him. And so that's why Paul says in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident or clear to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul says all of the hardship, all of the unfairness, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the gospel continues to go out. Everybody around Paul, even the Roman guards, they realize Paul's innocent. The only reason Paul's in prison is because he's preaching Jesus and people don't like that. And so Paul continues in verse 14 and he says, and most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only does Paul get the chance to share the gospel with the guards that are in charge of him and the other prisoners, but Paul knows that his example of being in prison, his example of being willing to suffer for Christ, has helped other Christians share their faith with more boldness. You see, Paul was not living for comfort or entertainment or earthly pleasures. He was not living for his own kingdom. Paul was living for the gospel and for the kingdom of heaven. And that should be the goal of every Christian. On your note sheet today, if you want to take notes, your first fill in the blank says, My greatest desire should be for God to use me for his glory and kingdom." That should be our desire, for God to use you and me for his glory and for his kingdom. And this was Paul's desire. And because that was Paul's desire, Paul found joy, despite the fact that he was an innocent prisoner for at least three years. Paul's example encouraged others to live a life sold out for Christ to live a life for God's glory and for his kingdom. 
One of the best ways to cultivate this heart for God, this willingness to sacrifice, is by reading a missionary biography. These are just a few of my favorites, but when you read these real stories, these testimonies of men and women who lived for Jesus, they lived and died for the gospel, you can't help but be challenged to pick up your own cross and to live for Christ as well. We have dozens of missionary biographies in the library here for you to borrow and read and be encouraged by, by the way. Obviously, we are not all called to be missionaries. We're not all called to pack up and move out of country and start sharing the gospel with somebody in a foreign language. But we are all called to live this short, temporary, earthly life for God's glory and for God's kingdom. Now, when we think about Paul there in prison, he's talking about the chains that he's literally in. He literally has chains on his arms and or his legs. But instead of complaining about not being able to travel, not being able to go out and spread the gospel, he got busy sharing the gospel with those that were in prison and writing letters to the churches that he couldn't visit in person. And so I ask you and me today, what are your chains? Probably not literal chains, but what are the things holding you back in life? The things holding you back that prevent you from doing the ministry that you would love to be able to do? Are you chained by health limitations? Don't complain about your lack of health or being stuck at home, but get busy praying. Get busy seeking the Lord. Are you chained by finances or by raising kids or by a hectic job? Are you chained by a lack of gifting that you feel? You have two options. You can complain about what you can't do, or you can get busy with what you can do for Jesus and for his kingdom. Now, Paul continues in verse 15, and he says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So Paul says that of those others that are also sharing the gospel, not all of them do so with a pure heart. Some are sharing Christ with a selfish motive. Perhaps their heart is really, man, I want to be more successful than Paul. While he's in prison, I'm going to make more disciples than he is. They want a bigger church than Paul has. That's their selfish motive. But look at what Paul says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. You see, because Paul's not living for his own name, he's not living for his own kingdom, Paul doesn't mind that some people preach Jesus in an effort to compete with Paul. Paul says, I don't care. As long as they're preaching the gospel, I'm happy because that's what matters. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Pastor A.W. Tozer exemplifies Paul's same heart in this prayer. Look at the quote on the screen. Tozer says, dear Lord, from now on, I refuse to compete with any of your servants. They have congregations larger than mine. So be it. 
I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts. Very well. That is not in their power nor in mine. I am humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use the modest gifts I have for your glory. I will not compare myself with any, nor try to build up my self-esteem by noting where I may excel others in your holy work. Apart from you, I am nothing. I am but an unprofitable servant. I gladly go to the foot of the cross and consider myself the least of your people. If I err in my self-judgment and actually underestimate myself, I do not want to know it. I want to pray for others and to rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is my own if it is your own. For what is yours is mine, and while one plants and another waters, it is you, Lord, alone that gives the increase. Don't you love that? Amen. What a challenge. May we be a church that rejoices in another local church's growth or success. May we be Christians that minister while also praying for God to bless and use other people for his kingdom and for his glory. May we be united in our passion for Jesus, our dedication to the gospel, and our lives lived for God's kingdom. Now, in verses 19 through 26, we read about a life surrendered to Christ. Paul says in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's greatest concern was that whether by his life or death, that God would be magnified. Now, think about it. When you take a telescope, you're not actually causing the stars to be more beautiful. You're not causing the stars to get bigger. But the telescope helps you see their beauty and see how big they are more easily. And so, too, Paul cannot add to God's beauty, nor can Paul add to God's greatness. But by boldly living or boldly dying for the gospel, God's beauty and greatness are easier to see by all those around Paul's life. The spectators that watch Paul's lack of concern for his own well-being, his sole concern for the gospel and God's kingdom, they look at him and they're amazed as they see his boldness. <clears throat> they get a glimpse of God's power in Paul. They get a glimpse of God's grace when they hear Paul share the invitation of the gospel that says, we are all sinners. We all fall short. But Jesus came. And he died on the cross to pay our debt in full so that anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who will trust in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. You can be saved by trusting in Jesus. And everybody is blown away at God's grace. Now, in verse 20, Paul says that he expects and hopes that he won't be ashamed 
by keeping quiet about his faith or by keeping quiet about the gospel. He would be ashamed if he fails to magnify God in his life or in his death. But Paul is confident that he won't be ashamed because of two things. He mentions them there. He says, because, number one, the Philippian church is praying for him. And, number two, Paul has the supply of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is his strength. And these are two things every believer needs to be successful. On your note sheet, number one, we need the supply of the Spirit. You and I cannot be Christians. We cannot live up to God's calling for us without God's strength. His Holy Spirit empowering us to follow him, to live for him, to die for him. And number two, every Christian needs to be successful, prayer support. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be willing to share with other believers the things that we're struggling in, the things that we need support and encouragement through. Because without the power of the Spirit or without the support of prayer of others, we're going to end up feeling depleted and ashamed because we're falling short of what God has called us to do. It's one of the reasons we push life groups so much because we know that coming here on a Sunday morning is awesome to get into God's word and to worship together. But if you don't have people that you can go deeper with, people that you can really share what you need prayer for, and then take time to pray for each other about, then you're missing out on the body of Christ. And so sign up for a life group. You're not going to regret it. Now, you'll want to underline this next verse in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Underline that in your Bibles. This is a powerful verse. Paul says, my life is not about me. My life is about Jesus. This is something every Christian needs to be reminded of. There on your note sheet. This life is not about you. This life is not about you. It's not about me. I confess I spent years believing that my life was about me. I spent years treating God like he was a vending machine in the sky. Whenever I had a need or a want or a craving, I would just, you know, dial up, dear Lord, here's what I need today. Boop, 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 boop. Lord, please heal my dog. She's sick. Lord, please help me to pass this test. Lord, please just convince some poor woman to like me. All these different prayer requests in middle school, they were really at the top of my list. But that's how I treated God, just like a vending machine. I thought God existed to make me happy. And then one day I realized that I had it all backwards. God didn't exist to serve me, but I exist to serve God. I repented, and for the first time I prayed, Lord, I don't like it. But Lord, not my will, yours be done. Man, that was life-changing for me. That was the first moment where I began to surrender to Jesus, where I stopped telling Jesus what he needed to do, and I began to ask him, what do you want me to do? And yet still today, I need to be reminded that this life is not about me. God does not exist to make you happy or to follow your lead. God created you for his glory. 
God tells us in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. God made you for his glory. But you and I sinned. We fell short. And so Jesus died on the cross to pay for our debt, redeeming us, purchasing us back. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, the reason we should glorify God, the reason we should live for him is because he died for us. It's because he's rescued us from what we deserve in hell. He's rescued us from the bondage of our own sin. So God not only created you for his glory, but he purchased you with his blood. Therefore, Paul declares, to live is Christ. May you honor Christ when you speak. May you honor Christ when you work. May you honor Christ in your resting. May you honor Christ whether you're at church or you're at home. May you honor Christ whether you're alone or you're around others. May Christ be in the center of your goals and your desires. This is what Paul means when he says to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Now look at verse 21 again. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why does Paul consider death to be a gain? Well, it's because Paul knows the hope of eternal life. There's a story of a Sunday school teacher who was sharing the gospel with her class of, of little children. And she asked them, what do you need to do in order to go to heaven. And one little boy, he raised his hand and he said, you have to die. Well, that wasn't quite the answer she was looking for. She was going more for, well, you have to believe in Jesus. That's right. But the kid's not all wrong there, right? He understands what Paul's talking about. You see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. While you and I are here in our earthly bodies, living this earthly life, we are separated from God. Now, we have the Spirit in us, but we're not living in His presence yet. And so, verse 7 goes on, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body, to leave these earthly bodies, and to be present with the Lord. You see, Paul is saying that the moment a Christian dies is the moment they are now dwelling with God face to face, living in his presence. For the believer, on your note sheet, for the believer, death is when we finally experience salvation. Death is when we finally experience salvation. Think about it. 
You can believe in Jesus, and today you are saved. You are going to heaven. But until you die, you're not there. Pretty simple logic, right? And so with that, we recognize that death is a gain for the believer. You see, for the believer, death is the end of struggling in sin. For the believer, death is the end of pain and suffering. For the believer, death is even the end of death. For the believer, death is the beginning of heaven. It's the beginning of dwelling face to face with Jesus, our Lord. Paul shares about the time when he was given a glimpse of heaven. Paul wasn't even sure if it was a vision that he had or if God physically took him, gave him a little glimpse of heaven and then took him back. Paul says, I don't even know if I was there or if I just got a vision of it. But, but he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul says, I was caught up into paradise and I heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So here's Paul's glimpse into heaven. He says, it was so wonderful, I can't even express the things that I heard. Notice he doesn't even mention the things that he saw, the things that he touched. Just the audio of heaven alone was overwhelming for Paul. I love that. Heaven is overwhelmingly, inexpressibly good. And so Paul looks to death with peace, joy, and even anticipation. Because he knows that he'll finally be in the presence of Jesus. But I do want to be clear. Though we as believers should anticipate being with Jesus, we must not entertain thoughts of suicide. Don't believe the lie that says it's just better to take my life to end it now. Don't believe the lie that says God's okay with me coming home on his terms. I just have to do the hard thing and then I'll be in his presence. Don't believe those lies. That's not from the Lord. That's from Satan. If you are still here, it's because God has a plan for you to bring glory to his name. A plan for you to further his kingdom for his glory. Maybe it's only for a few more days. Maybe it's for several more decades. But we want to have a heart that is surrendered to the Lord. On your note sheet, if you're here, God's not finished with you. If you're here, God is not finished with you. If you've been hearing that voice whispering in your ear saying, what are you even here for? What are you living for? What's the point? May you hear from the Lord today that God does have a purpose for you. It's number one, to believe in Jesus if you haven't done so already. And number two, it's to live for him. Simple as that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is God's will for you. That is God's desire for you so that you can live a life that glorifies him and that furthers his kingdom. Paul knew this. That's why Paul continues in verse 22. 
Paul says, but if I live on in the flesh, if I stay here on this earth, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul says, I'd love to continue to live on and continue to encourage you Philippians and the other churches to help you grow in your love and your, in your life with Jesus. But I'd also really love to go home and be with Jesus. I'd love that. Paul says, I'm torn between the two. But Paul also says, it's far better to be with Christ than to be here on earth. And so torn between these two desires, Paul says in verse 24, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul says, I believe I'm going to get released one day. I'm not going to be in these chains forever. I'm not going to be killed quite yet. I think I'm going to be set free because I think God wants me to continue to encourage you in the faith. I think God wants me to help you grow in your love for him. And I think Paul, Paul says, I think God even wants me to come back and visit you one more time to give you another hug in the Lord. Although Paul has been in prison for years, although he never expected to arrive in Rome as a prisoner, Paul's doing quite well. Paul is at peace. Paul has joy because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we read in verses 27 through 30 where Paul exhorts the Philippian believers. Look at verse 27. Paul says now to the Philippians, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. Paul gives two commands to the church in Philippi. Two ways that they can let their conduct be worthy of the gospel. Number one, that the church would be united. <clears throat> Paul says, I want you guys to be of one mind, of one spirit, united together in Jesus. You see, the key to unity is not to focus on one another. The key to unity is not to try to imitate each other. The key to unity is to focus on Jesus. And as we all come from different backgrounds and cultures and, and whatever, we're all focusing on Jesus. We're all converging together as one, as opposed to us trying to be like each other. By focusing on Jesus and the gospel, we will have a unified spirit, a united mind. We do not have to agree with every Christian on everything. We don't. 
we don't have to all love or prefer the same kinds of worship songs. We don't have to all dress the same way or like the same styles. We don't even have to agree on how and when Jesus is coming back. But we do and must agree that Jesus is the only way of salvation. That Jesus saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must be united in the essentials of Christianity, but there's a lot of things that are not essential. And Paul says, focus on the essentials, be of one mind, be united in the essentials. And in the rest, love one another, prefer one another. So the first way to live a life worthy of the gospel, Paul says, be united as the church. Paul's second command was this, do not fear persecution. Here's how you live a life worthy of the gospel. Be united as one and don't fear persecution. Paul's ministry in the city of Philippi, where the Philippians are, it started, it began in persecution. He and Silas were whipped and thrown into jail. Well, the believers in Philippi were still suffering persecution for their faith. And Paul says that persecution that you are enduring, it's a reminder that you are destined for heaven. Now, Paul's not saying you've earned your way to heaven by suffering for Jesus. But what Paul is saying is if you have genuine faith, it's going to change how you live. If your faith in Jesus isn't just head knowledge, but it's, it's here, you're trusting in Jesus, then you're willing even to suffer, even to be persecuted for the gospel. And Paul says that is evidence that your faith is real. That is proof that you are destined for heaven. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, starting in verse 27, he says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God has perfect and complete knowledge. Not even something as insignificant of a sparrow's death happens apart from God's knowledge. The very hairs of your head are numbered. That means more to us than some than others. The worst that man can do to you is kill you. So don't fear. If you're a Christian, death only means you're finally in the presence of Jesus. Now, back in Philippians 1, look at verse 29 with me. Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to be healthy, wealthy, and popular. Is that what your Bible says? It's worth a try, right? No, let's look at that again. Look at verse 29. Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer 
for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. God has granted for us to not only believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. I've yet to see anybody get that verse tattooed on their forearm. The word on the street is, believe in Jesus, he'll make you happy. But the word in the Bible says, believe in Jesus, he'll make you holy. The word on the street says, Jesus will bless you and make your life easier. But the word in the Bible says, Jesus will bless you by allowing you to suffer for his name. Jesus himself said in John 15, starting in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you blend in with the world, you do the things with the world, you approve the things the world does, you'll blend right in. They'll love you. Yet, because you are not of the world, Jesus says, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There's a story of a Christian man in India who one day he was jumped and beaten up because of his faith. And after the beating was over, his attacker got up and he fled from the scene. And this Christian man, he got up and he ran after him. And he said, wait, let me tell you about Jesus. Now, I confess, I don't think that's what I would have done. If it were me, I think I would have been thinking, how can I get away from this crazy guy? If it were me, I would have been thinking nothing more beyond, ouch, this hurts. And yet for this Christian man in India, he's getting beaten for his faith. And all he can think of is, boy, this guy probably doesn't know Jesus. And God sent him to me so I can share with him. You see, this guy knew how to have Paul's heart. This guy knew what it means in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. On your note sheet, don't believe the lie that says believing in Jesus will make my life easier. Don't believe that lie. Jesus never promised an easy life. Jesus promises eternal life. You see, you and I, we need Jesus to rescue us from our sin. To rescue us from his righteous judgment that is coming one day. Where anyone who has not believed in Jesus, who has not received Jesus, remains guilty of their sin. And they'll spend eternity in hell. We need somebody who has never sinned to pay our debt. His name is Jesus. There is no other. There is no other substitute to pay for our sin. There is no other way for us to escape hell and get to heaven. It's only through Jesus. What if you found out 
that you only had six months to live. Consider the things in your life that bring you stress or worry. Consider the things that you pray about. Consider the way that you are living. If you knew you only had six months left, what would change? Is there something that God has put on your heart to do that you've been neglecting? You've been procrastinating. Are there things that you need to be more concerned about that you've been neglecting? God wants you and me to live in such a way that is always ready for his return. To live in such a way that is always ready to die so that we can then go to heaven and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is not a call to quit your job and stop paying your bills. This is a call to live for Christ. Or, as Paul said in verse 27, it's a call to live worthy of the gospel. I want to close by reading a few verses of a poem written by a missionary named C.T. Studd. It's on the screen for you. He says, Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. On your note sheet, your last fill in the blank, only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Church, I'm not up here because I've got it all together. I'm not up here because I'm doing this great. I'm just a messenger. So church, may we be united together as we recognize our faults and our failures and say, Lord Jesus, would you please give me more of you 
less of me. Lord Jesus, would you help us to be a church that lives and breathes the heart that says to live as Christ, to die as gain, living for God's glory and for his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. Thank you so much that you loved us enough to even while we were still sinners, come and die on the cross in our place. God, we're so grateful for the fact that you begin the work in our heart in drawing us to you and showing us our need for your salvation. And Lord, if there's anybody here or listening online that has not yet become a Christian, they have not yet surrendered their life to you. Maybe they're still living as if life is all about them. Then Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to their heart. God, that you would begin that work of revealing not only your love, but revealing their need for you, Jesus. You are the only way to be saved. And if that's you, then I invite you to simply pray to the Lord, just in your heart, between you and God, just to say, Lord, have mercy on me. God, would you save me? Lord, would you help me to live this life for you, for your glory, for your kingdom? God, would you change me from the inside out? Lord, I thank you that you take us as we are, but Lord, you will not leave us that way. God, would you continue that work unto completion until each of us are with you in your presence in heaven? God, would you help us to be a church and help us to be an individual believer that lives for you, that looks at death, as a gain because we know and trust and believe that though you bless us with many good things here in this life, God, the best is yet to come. Lord, we know it's all going to be worth it. So Lord, help us to live a life surrendered to you. Help us to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, would it be your strength, your spirit, moving in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We praise you. God, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives surrendered to you. Lord, we're just unprofitable servants. God, may you get all the glory, all the praise. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.